everyone, and welcome to this week's edition of the Ohio Baseball Weekly Show. I'm Dave Mitchell. Glad to have you along with us this evening as we sit back and talk about the Cleveland Indians and the Cincinnati Reds. And there are two reasons that I like Monday nights. First of all, it's the beginning of the week, and it's loaded with opportunities. And the second, I get to sit back and talk baseball with our resident Reds expert, Mark Donahue. Mark, good evening. How are you? Good evening, Dave. I'm glad I'm part of your uh, enjoyment of Monday. That makes me feel very, very, very good. Thank you very much for including me in all your... Now, I hate Mondays, aside from this hour on Monday. <laughs> but uh, aside from that, actually today, as you well know, I'm sure you're going to bring this up, but uh, we lost a Hall of Famer today and uh, in Tony Gwynn. And um, uh, that's sad because I, I, I didn't meet him face-to-face, but... I saw him play. We were out in Arizona. I think it was in Maryville. I think that's where they train. I forget which stadium they're at. But uh, I saw Tony Gwynn take about, I don't know, 40 minutes of batting practice, and it was it was just amazing uh, how, how he could hit. Just an incredible, incredible player. Yeah, in case you missed it, Tony Gwynn, San Diego Padres Hall of Famer, died today at the age of 54 from cancer and mark yeah i i thought it would be apropos for tonight's show if we would just uh postpone talking about the reds and the indians just at least for a few minutes here at the top of the show and talk a little bit about tony gwynn because what a career not only a career but what a man tony gwynn was and i've been hearing stories all day long about the man and the hitter and they were almost one and the same mark that's right. That's right. He was one of the same, and uh, it's it's an incredible tribute uh, when other players around the league um, marvel at his uh, performance over a 20-year career. And, you know, part of the fun of this show, Dave, is I know we have a lot of young listeners out there, and I, I want to put this in perspective for our, our listeners. In, in the last six years, uh, and I, I looked this up, uh, Adam Dunn has struck out over a thousand times, just to put this in perspective. And, and Jay Bruce has averaged about 175, 150 to 175 strikeouts since he's been in the big league. So he's probably got close to 700 in only five or six years. Tony Gwynn had in a 20-year career, this is amazing, Uh, just again, to give you a perspective, you listeners, how great this guy was. In a 20-year career, he struck out 434 times. That means he averaged only 21 strikeouts per year. Per year? Per year. And I went back and I found out that that, uh, um, Jay Bruce... I think it is in the last eight games. He struck out 23 times, I think, in eight games. And <laughs> it is, you know, what you kids and, and everybody out there, what all of us are seeing now is such a different game than it used to be. And to do a little, I just did a little homework here on Tony Gwynn because I was marveling at his numbers. And you, and, Dave, you can pick over his 20-year career. There was only one year he didn't hit over 300, and he Mm -hmm. hit 289. It was his first year. 
for 19 consecutive years, this guy hit over 300. So it was hard to pick out seven years to highlight, but I did. I picked out from 91 to 97. He struck out an average of 19 times a year, had 1,249 hits, and had a batting average over seven years of 353. Can you think of one player that that we could quickly recall in the last 10 years, 20 years, besides him that has done those has created those kinds of numbers? The only one I could even that I think could even come close is Miguel Cabrera, and I know as far as the strikeouts are concerned, there's no way he can match that. Well, the the only other guy I was thinking of, and I didn't have his numbers in front of me, was Ichiro, who had a lot of mm-hmm. uh, had a lot of hits and, a, and and very high batting averages. But uh, today's game, the guys just don't care if they strike out. That's that's the amazing thing. They don't care. It's, mm-hmm. it's to them, it's like hitting a ground ball to third. And yeah, they might have a few more home runs, but uh, you know, Tony, Tony Gwynn drove in over a thousand runs, had 135 home runs, 500 over 500 doubles. So it wasn't like he was a Judy hitter. But uh, when, when you you know, we lived you and I over the last 10, 12 years of his career. We had a Hall of Famer there, and you, you you somewhat take it for granted. You always look back and say, "Wow, Ted Williams, well, you know what a great hitter." Well, this guy had a th- a three thirty eight lifetime batting average, Tony Gwynn, and Ted Williams is three forty four, so they weren't that far apart. And no. we we revere Ted Williams, and maybe don't appreciate enough a guy like Tony Gwynn. Well, when you look at those strikeouts, Mark, let me put it into perspective also again. 434 strikeouts in 9,288 at-bats. That's one strikeout every 21 and a half at-bats throughout an entire career that spanned 20 years, Mark. He, I, I don't even think Ted Williams could rival that. No, you're right. Ted Williams had, had a, a little a little more of a strikeout rate. Not Not much more, but a little more. But, of course, he had a lot more power. He hit mm-hmm. for more home runs. He hit for over 500 home runs. So I maintain that Ted Williams is the greatest hitter of all time when you combine everything. But um, in, in terms of what Tony Gwynn did in our era, and he stopped playing in 2001. And the only thing about him, when I was down there, we were at this tournament down there uh, in, in this. I guess it was in. I guess it was in early spring training. And he was a big man. <laughs> I mean, he was probably 20, 25 pounds overweight. And I remember thinking, God, what would this guy do if he was in really great shape, like Ichiro? I mean, he probably could have hit 400 because he would have gotten a lot of uh, infield hits. But uh, he still, at, you know, one year, uh, he stole uh, 56 bases one year. Yeah. He stole 40 another year. So he wasn't like he was a slug when he was younger. But uh, he did let himself get out of shape a little bit. And when you look, he was in the World Series twice, 1984 and 1998. He hit a combined 371 in those two World Series, Mark. And another thing, when you talk about the strikeouts, he only had one game in his career, Mark, where he struck out three times. Just one game. You'll have guys like Bruce and Votto and Frazier strike out three times 
almost every week. Yeah. And what do you think, just just out of curiosity, what do you think the average bat size is for today's major leaguer? Well, it's about a 34-inch, 32-ounce, and I think he was a 33, 30, or 31-ounce. Yeah. Yeah, it was almost like a little league bat. As a matter of fact, he went to Louisville one time and picked out the wood that he wanted his bat to be made from. And I guess in the 1994 season, Mark, he used two bats the entire year. Yeah, he never. they said he never hit anything but on the screws. And that's an interesting statistic you bring up about his, or, or his bat. You would think if a guy is going to make that kind of contact, he would get hit by a pitch more because he'd have to stand closer to the plate. He was only hit by a pitch 24 times in his entire 20-year career. That's a little over one time per year. That's amazing. That <laughs> I mean, they couldn't pitch him inside because his bat speed was so terrific. You, you could not get a fastball by him. I don't care who you were. And so everybody pitched him on the outside corner, and he just wore him out. He's hit, hit after hit to left field. Yeah. Yeah, he he wore the he wore the number five point five yeah. on his spikes, so that would remind himself every time he went to home plate, Mark, to hit the ball through the hole between third and short. He called that the five point five hole. That's right, exactly right. And you know another amazing stat that I heard today: he never, in his career, struck out against Greg Maddox or Pedro Martinez. Well, that is amazing. Never struck out once again, once against them. Uh, another thing, you know, he took over as coach at San Diego State in the 2002 season where he coached two fu uh, future Major League Ball players, Mark, and a lot of people don't realize this, Steven Strasburg and Justin Masterson. Yeah, I heard, I heard about Strasburg. I knew he, he coached him, but... Yep, yep. You know, you think an about... Amazing you think about what you just said, that he struck out once every 21 at best. That means he struck out once every four or five games. And mm -hmm. he, he walked a lot. And, you know, it, it just – I don't know where these young kids are getting taught uh, to hit. But they certainly don't care about making contact. It's either a home run or a strikeout in, in many cases. And – it's it's frustrating, and I, God, I, I, at only 54 years old, Tony Gwynn um, was just a fantastic player. And er, as you said, everything that we've heard about him, he's really a good guy too. And they and they blame it upon upon the uh, smokeless tobacco, and that's what they think caused his his oral cancer problems. Yeah. So what do you, you think know, Mark? About I want to put. Go ahead. I'm sorry. What do you think about that? They, today on ESPN, they posed the question, should Major League Baseball ban it? And, um, you know, Major League Baseball has chosen not to ban it. And I just wonder how many more deaths have to occur before they do, because it gives kids the wrong impression, too, that that, that stuff is harmless, and it's, it's anything but harmless. Mm -hmm. Well, I heard another question on a radio station today, Mark. I'm going to pose this question to you. Who do you think was the better hitter, Tony Gwynn or Pete Rose? Tony Gwynn. No better question. pure hitter? Oh, oh without question. It's not, not even close. Uh, Tony, Tony, uh, Pete Rose had a lot more bats than uh, uh, 
did right. Tony Gwynn. Uh, but he was not he was not a natural hitter. He you know he was a powerfully built guy who just made contact. And uh, but it, just as a sheer hitter, um, you know Pete Rose was not the equal of Tony Gwynn. I mean I think his lifetime batting average is what three oh six. Something like that, yeah, yeah. I agree with you. I think, uh, all in all, when you when you take everything into consideration, I think Tony Gwynn was also. You know, Tony Gwynn also did something else that major leaguers don't do today. He bunted. Yeah. He he <laughs> laid down some bunts. And another thing was too, Mark. As we wrap this up, uh, he was a good, maybe more than good, and above average to great outfielder starting out his career in right field and moving to left field, but he won five gold gloves, and in conjunction with that, won eight batting titles, Mark, that tied him for second for most in Major League Baseball history behind Ty Cobb with 13. Yeah, he, he's, he was really one of a kind, and uh, he never varied from his, um, his approach at the plate. He didn't care that people said, well, you need to hit more home runs. And near the end of his career in 1996, uh, let me see, he hit uh, 17 home runs. In 97, he hit 16 home runs. So he could hit for, for you know, the long ball. You know, chicks dig the long ball. But when he hit 17 home runs, he also drove in 119 runs that year, hit 372. I mean, that's what a yeah. year. And that wasn't even his best year. His best year was in 1994 when he hit 394. That's, and he may have hit 400, Mark, had it not been for the strike. That's right. And he had a 454 on base percentage. <laughs> yeah. Just, I mean, you, you stack him up against today's major leaguers, Mark, and there really is no comparison. Even to Miguel Cabrera, Albert Pujols, you stick him up against those guys. And, and he made it into the Hall of Fame in 2007 with a 97 and, perhaps, and a half percentage in approval votes. First vote, Hall of Famer. Almost unanimous. Yeah, who was the idiots that voted against him? Absolutely. Well, Tony Gwynn passed away today at the age of 54. We're sorry to hear that. Well, we're here to talk about the Indians and the Reds, Mark, and I'll tell you what, had it not been for the weekend, it may have been a disastrous week for both the Indians and the Reds, but the Reds managed. Let's, let's take a look at them. They've got a 33-35 and 35 record coming into tonight's action in which they're off. They're in fourth place right now, seven games behind Milwaukee. They were 4-3 and three on the week, but they've won six of their last ten, including they won two out of three in Milwaukee, which I think you and I agreed last week they had to at least take two out of three in Milwaukee. Yeah, they had a chance to sweep that. They had a lead going into the seventh inning of the game they lost, and they had a real chance to sweep that series and be only five games out, but... You take two out of three and get out of town. Um, they, they yesterday was the first time all year they looked overpowering. Uh, the pitching wasn't that good, but I mean, up and down that lineup, everybody was smacking the ball. And the, they had 19 hits, and there were four or five balls hit where the Brewers made great defensive plays. I mean, the Reds could have had 20, 25 hits easily yesterday. Uh, they they were really smoking the ball, but. Uh, it's going to be interesting, uh, and also the, I think an interesting thing happened yesterday with Singrani. He came out of the bullpen and pitched two scoreless innings, and the Reds disabled Sean Marshall. So I think that move is—I mean, Sean Marshall has been getting pounded all year. 
that that move may help the Reds in a lot of ways, strengthen their bullpen, and of course get Latos, who was brilliant on Friday night, and get him back in the rotation. And uh, if they can uh, continue to hit, who knows? Mark, how much longer are they going to put up with J.J. Hoover? I don't know, uh, and that leads me, I, I, unless you want to comment on the Indians now, but the, the, the Reds apparently made a move today. I don't know if you heard about it. No. Uh, they, according to every source, it's not been confirmed, that they have signed a Cuban right-hander named Raciel Iglesias. And he actually had dinner, apparently, with, um, it's a $15 million deal over five or six years, Details will be announced tomorrow, apparently. Uh, it's the same length as Araldus Chapman for about half the price, but he's a, he's a little guy. He's only like 5'11", 165, 170, but he throws 98. He's supposed to have a, a knee-breaking curveball, and apparently it was Chapman who convinced him to come over to the Reds. Now, the stories I have seen today say that they want him as a starter, and if they sign him, it's going to lead them to trading one of their existing starters. By, Homer by, Bailey? Could be, they didn't say which one, but they, they, what every article said is that there's no way the Reds can afford Homer Bailey, Mike Leak, Johnny Cueto, Latos, and, well, and then Singrani. Right. So, well, that's something you've been saying now since they signed Homer Bailey. Is this kid Major League ready right now? Yeah, they said he can help him this year. That's why they signed him. Uh, he's been playing a lot, so he's twenty. I think he's twenty-three years old, twenty-two or twenty-three. But supposed to have great control. And um, oh, he's twenty-four years old. He said if Iglesias could benefit from the strong pitching minds in the Reds organization: Ted Power, Mario Soto, Jeff Pico, or Brian Price. Uh, and you know, they say this kid. Is, is somebody that a lot of teams had wanted, and the Reds stepped up and signed him. I, I'm sorry, did you say he was a righty or a lefty? He is a righty. Okay. And so getting back yeah, to your been... point about J.J. Hoover. <laughs> I, I don't understand how they continue to put up with this guy. I mean, every time he comes into a ball game, he, he just gives up the long ball. Yeah, it, it's you know, it's it's almost predictable. You can see it coming. When he was the other night, when Braun hit that home run, the guy before him doubled. Every pitch was up, and I said to myself, "He's going to throw a run right over the outside corner of the plate, and Braun's going to hit it to right field, and that's going to be the game." And I no more got that thought out of my brain than Braun deposits the ball over the right field fence. And you know, I wasn't even mad. It was like, man, I knew that was going to happen. You know, it's like, yeah. are you kidding me? How can I? And you look at this guy pitch and see the results, and they keep running him out there. I don't get it. And it's the same thing with the Indians, Mark, with Nick Hagadon. It's almost like they're trying to, they continually try to bring up Hagadon in order to justify that trade with Victor Martinez to Boston, even though Justin Masterson came with it. But every time they bring this kid up, Mark, he's a, he's a hard throwing left hander, he can't throw the ball anywhere near home plate. And that's what happened to him in Boston on Friday night. And they brought him in to face uh, Ortiz. And uh, I can't remember who the, 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 the next guy was 
uh, batting cleanup, but it was a left-hander that night for Boston, and he walked both of them. And they had to take him out, and they br- the next day they sent him back down to Columbus and brought up Kyle Crockett, and Crockett is a strike-throwing machine. I think Crockett has made his way onto this roster, and I'm not so sure Hagedon will ever see an Indian's uniform again. But it's the same thing. It's the same dilemma for both clubs with Hoover and Hagedon. Uh, you know, you mentioned a name, and I've forgotten. He was with the Indians. Where do you think the Indians would be today, and where do you think Detroit would be if they had not oh. made that Victor Martinez trade? Oh, you know, um, well, first of all, we would we would not have Justin Masterson, but mm-hmm. I think our pitching would still be in pretty good hands. But I'll tell you what, we'd have our cleanup hitter, Mark. Yep. That would be the guy that we would put a cleanup. Uh, we could put him at first base. We could play him at DH. I mean, quite quite honestly, if they if they offered it right now, I would trade Carlos Santana for Victor Martinez in a heartbeat right now, straight up. Oh my God, yeah, absolutely. Even though uh, Santana has hit a home run in two of the last four ball games, Nick Swisher he hit a home run yesterday uh, to help beat Boston. The Indians right now are even in 500 they're playing the angels tonight and winning that game by a run four to three over the angels they've won nine in a row at home mark the indians are three and a half games behind detroit in third place in the al central and they're also a game behind kansas city they were three and four on the week and five and five in the last ten but the indians problem continues to be they don't consistently get the two-out base hit that they were getting a year ago. And every once in a while, the bonehead plays will come up. For example, in Boston, on Thursday and Friday, they had a couple of bonehead plays, primarily by Asdrubal Cabrera and Lonnie Chisenhall at third base, and you can't continue to have that. They didn't commit errors, but they were just silly boneheaded plays, one on a double play that would have ended the inning that Cabrera just dropped at second, and another one was a hotly hit line drive down the third baseline that Chisenhall ended up throwing into the dugout that was an error. But they've got to shore that up a little bit more, and I think they can make a run at this thing, especially the way Detroit has been playing lately. Yeah, I was going to say, I think it's more of Detroit coming back to earth than the Indians uh, you cannot have, what, 65 errors? Is that what they have, something like that at this point? Yeah. Uh, you cannot win a division with that. Eventually, it's going to catch up with you. And their pitching has been good enough to overcome some horrid horrid defense and some inconsistent offense. But imagine how many games they'd get. They'd probably given away, what, four or five games on defense alone? Uh, easily. Easily, Mark. And that's so you- one of the questions that we're going to have coming up in our Ask Us segment about the Reds' defense coming up here in about five minutes. You can send in your questions to ask us at ultimatesportstalk.com or dmitch at ultimatesportstalk.com. But, yeah, I mean, when you compare the two defenses between Cincinnati and Cleveland, Mark, there there is no comparison. The Reds have one of the better defenses in the National League. Oh, they have one of the best. I think they have the fewest errors in baseball. Uh, they're really playing very well defensively. Of course, every team will screw up occasionally, but... Uh, that that has kept them kept them in the running because the, the offense has been non-existent until recently, and if they can, you know, get the get the offense to 
perk along, uh, even with a shaky bullpen, uh, you know, if you're hit, scoring enough runs, your your bullpen doesn't have to be letter perfect every night. But speaking of letter perfect, and again, before the end of the year, a Rollis Chapman is going to blow two or three saves. And what's his name? Broxton is going to get hit. But there are, there are not two better setup men and closer back-to-back, that tandem, in baseball than those two. They have a combined ERA, I think it was 0.62. <laughs> I mean, they, they've been virtually unhittable. Now, they won't, they won't well, laugh. Yeah. I, I saw Chapman, I believe it was on Friday night, and he came in, Mark, and he was just lights out. He was just throwing the ball and just down the middle of the plate, 99 to 100 miles an hour, and just daring the hitters to hit it. Well, what's frightening, I, I heard two analysts, um, I think it was Saturday's uh, show, and they were saying that he has developed a – Changeup in one year that is one of the best three changeups in baseball now, and he throws his changeup at 90 miles an hour, and the ball wow. darts it darts away from if he's throwing to a right hand hitter it'll dart away it'll, it looked like fastball coming down the middle and just boom you know move away and it's virtually unhittable and then he, he struck out uh, their catcher I forgot what's his name. Um, uh, uh, Luke Roy. Luke on Friday night with the, with a 92 mile an hour slider that you could not have hit with an oar. I mean that ball <laughs> it, it disappeared. It was over the plate and almost hit him in the leg, and he swung and missed. It was the last strike of the game. But right now he, he's as unhittable as I've seen him. And again, he'll, he'll get lit up before the year's over more than once. But uh, right now Chapman uh, and 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 Broxton are just a devastating one-two punch if you can get into the eighth inning. Have you seen the ball get hit back through the box on Chapman, and, and if so, how did he react? Nobody hits him. <laughs> I mean, it's, I'm, <laughs> I'm not being facetious. I mean, he, he has pitched 16 innings, so that's a total of, what, 48 batters faced. He has struck out 31 of them in, in 16 innings, so he's striking out almost two per inning. And so the other guys who are hitting them, hitting him, aren't hitting it hard. He's got a 0.56 whip, which is, of course, my favorite statistic. And Broxton uh, is 0.69 whip. So nobody's even, you know, hitting these guys. That's well, I know I've watched Chapman. I've, I've watched Chapman, Mark, I believe, seven times since he's come back. And the only game that I have seen him have any trouble in was the Arizona game where he gave up a couple of hits in the bottom of the ninth inning. And still even then, he appeared to be <laughs> extremely dominant in that inning. Yeah, he's only given up five hits all year. And he struck out 31 guys, and he's only walked four. I, I, I defy anybody to match those statistics. I wish, yeah, they'd, I wish he, they'd make him a starter. I really do. He would be amazing starter. Now, how is Singrani? Uh, you said yesterday was a good outing for him, but do you think he'll be able to adjust going to the bullpen for the rest of the year? Yeah, I do. I, he, in fact, I think the bullpen's a better spot for him. He really is a, a two-pitch pitcher. He's got a, a little bit of a breaking ball, not much of one, but you know, 75 80% of his pitches are fastballs. And you can't be a starter with that. Guys will figure you're out. But in, he's coming in off the uh, out of the bullpen. 
he can throw 95, 96 miles an hour. So he replaces Sean Marshall, who was throwing at 78 miles an hour. And I think you pick up a lot of, of, of value in Singrani, and he looked very good yesterday. I'm certainly happy to see that. Well, and I also think Singrani is probably more dependable health-wise than Sean Marshall. Oh, by far. Yeah, that wouldn't that wouldn't take a, that's a that's not a real high bar he sets. <laughs> well, let's take a look at our magic numbers. Of course, at the beginning of the month of June, Mark and I predicted what the Reds and Indians had to win in order to stay in the divisional race for the Indians. I predicted they needed 16 wins in the month of June and going into tonight's game, Mark, they've got 9. And for Cincinnati, you predicted they needed 18 in the month of June. And going into their series tomorrow against Pittsburgh, they've got eight. So both teams appear to be on the right track. Yeah, I mean, I think we're you know you you define that as, as staying in there, you know, staying in the uh, in the hunt. And uh, you know, that's at this point, that's about all you can hope for is that you go into September and you're within two or three games, and you have a chance to you know pull it out at the end because when you have a start like the Reds did. Uh, you know they, they have they have to make up a lot of ground and hope that somebody comes back to them. But the good thing is they've got, I think they got 13 games left with Milwaukee between now and the end of the year. So they're going to have their chance. I mean it's not like they're they're out of it by any means. They're going to have a chance, uh, and they played well against Milwaukee so far. I think they're five and two. So you know they picked up a game this weekend and they play Pittsburgh this this weekend and then or this week and then they get a tough weekend series against Toronto coming up next weekend. Well, I heard Ron Renicky make the statement, the manager of Milwaukee make the statement over the weekend, Mark, that he thinks the National League Central Division from top to bottom is not only the best division in baseball, but he thinks they've got the best starting pitching top to bottom, of any division in the league. And i got to say, when I thought about that, I think he's right. I think he's got a point. I think he's right, too. And I can't think of his name now, but even the Cubs, who are in last place, they got some great pitching. they got Samarja, and they got this other right-hander, a big kid. I forget his name now, but uh, even their pitching is very good. And, well, Travis Wood, too. And, uh, yeah, Travis Wood, of course. So... They're they're to be dealt with. I mean, you just don't go into Chicago anymore and, and you know think you're going to sweep them because their pitching's too good. So I think he's absolutely right. And when you look at the arms the Reds have, and now and late I don't know if you saw Latos on Friday night, but he looked absolutely dominant uh, on Saturday night. I mean, he was Saturday. He looked unhittable. So yeah, it, it, yeah, it, I, I thought he looked outstanding coming off the DL. Yeah, absolutely outstanding. Like you said, he was dominant, and he seemed to have control of everything. Mark, maybe he was right that he was ready a start early. Maybe, but maybe he wasn't. Maybe that extra start gave him some consistency and stretched him out a little bit. Who knows? Uh, but, again, we're not even at the all-star break yet. And if you have – I mean, imagine going into Cincinnati, and you're, you're a visiting team coming in, and you, you have a four-game series, and you got to face Cueto – Bailey, Latos, and Leak, and not even and, and that doesn't include um, what's his name Simon, who's who leads the league in wins. He's got nine wins, so I'd probably put him in, in front of Leak. I mean, that, those are four studs you got to face. Yeah. Okay. It's time for our Ask Us segment. 
This is where you get to ask Mark and I questions about the Reds, the Indians, or anything in Major League Baseball. And Mark, we've got three really good questions tonight, I think. And let's start it off with a Reds question from Rosie1645, who asks you, and this is about the Reds defense. I hear Mark talk about the Reds defense and saying it's it's over the season, it's been the best that he's seen. Is the Reds defense, how does it rank with the best ever? Well, you won't know until the end of the year. And even then, defense is the most sub- subjective statistic. So you could, you could have a team, as an example, that commits the fewest errors in, in a season, Rosie. And that doesn't mean they're the best defensive team. It just means that the balls they got to, they are sure-handed, they make good throws, and, and they're obviously a good team. But the other part of that is that there are some players, like an Ozzie Smith, he would get to balls that nobody else would get to. So his contribution to the defense was, was more than just not making an error. So defense is, again, very subjective, but I think with, with the range the Reds have in their infield particularly, that is a great defensive infield. And with Brandon Phillips even slowing down a step, and he, he certainly is slowing down a step, but you have Votto and you have Brandon Phillips and Zach Cozart and Todd Frazier, who has improved light years at, at defense. That is a very, very strong defensive team. And the outfield with Jay Bruce. And I'll tell you, Billy Hamilton, he's a gold glove outfielder right now. So the two weak spots in the Reds' defense lineup is catcher. Devin Mesorocco is not a good defensive catcher yet. He's a work in progress. In the left field, you got Ryan Ludwig, who doesn't cover much ground. Uh, he's reasonably sure-handed, uh, but he, he's, there's a lot of balls that are going to, you know, hit the ground before he gets to him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know what you mean about Ryan Ludwig. He 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 doesn't cover much ground. He is sure-handed, almost like Shinsu Chu was a year ago. If he got his glove on it, he would catch it. But he he doesn't cover the near the ground that you wanted him to cover in center field. Neither does Ludwig in left field. Yeah, that, that, that's my feeling about that. You know, Mark, I've got to say that I, I enjoy some of the questions, but some of these names that come up to us via the email, I, I'm just not going to... What's wrong with Rosie? I like that name. So, Rosie's fine, but this next one is Mark Blankety Blank. has nothing to do with you. It's the name of, of their email, but I think it's a great question, so I thought I'd go ahead and ask it. What has gotten into Billy Hamilton at the plate over the last couple of weeks? Well, I think he's he's gotten over the jitters. If you remember his first game against the Cardinals, Adam Wainwright struck him out four times, and Dave he didn't come close to hitting a pitch. <laughs> he, right, he missed. And I think in the first, I think his he was he was over twelve, and he struck out eight or nine times. He was overmatched, and so I think he was a rookie. He was afraid. He he was overmatched at the time. He settled down. And that's what you want to see of a young player, that he has come back from adversity. You take away those first uh, 10, 12 games, and he's sitting over almost 300. And his on-base percentage finally went over 300. And right now he's got four home runs. I think he's got, what, 18 RBIs? Uh, and he's on, he's reaching base. He's stealing bases. He's playing great defense. Uh, he, he, I think he has exceeded just about everybody's expectations. Our third question on tonight's Ask Us segment comes from T. 
Tommy Tribe 45, and he says, I think this is. A, I, I, I think you and I are going to have an interesting discussion on this one. Over the past week, I heard a national radio station and a website ask the question, "Who is the better shortstop, Ozzie Smith or Omar Vizquel?" What do you guys think, Mark? I'm going to give you the floor first. Well, that, that's. In my opinion, they're tied for first, but if you're looking for an answer, I think without any question, Ozzie Smith was more spectacular. Uh, he, he made plays that no other human being in the history of baseball could make. Uh, but Vizquel, um, I mean, he, he was so good, so smooth. Uh, he, he made it look more effortless because I think he was a, he, he was a little stronger. Ozzie covered more ground. So I think you have to... To, to make that determination of who you'd want on your team, let's say defensively it's a wash. What could they do offensively? What could they do in the base pass? And what were they like in the in the dugout? In the dugout, I think both were grade A citizens. Uh, I, I don't have their statistics in front of me. I would say Ozzy probably had a little more offensive production than Vizquel, or um, yeah, uh, Omar Vizquel. Uh, so I'd have to look at the numbers, but. You, you couldn't lose defensively by picking either one of those guys. Well, I would agree with you, and I did look up the stats. Now, I don't have him, them, the exact numbers here in front of me, but I can tell you, offensively, Omar had over 150 more hits than Ozzie Smith had. He had more home runs. He had more RBIs. He struck out less and walked more and had more stolen bases. Well, that's As neither. far as defensively is concerned. Defensively, Omar had more putouts. He had less errors in over 300 more chances at the shortstop position only. I'm only taking into consideration shortstop because Omar in the latter years played uh, a couple of games in the outfield. He also played a few games at second base and third base. But taking into consideration only shortstop, he also had more putouts. He had 100 less assists than Ozzie Smith did. But as I said, he had over 100 less errors throughout his career. And uh, they both won the same amount of gold gloves. Which, to be honest with you, Mark, I was more surprised at the defensive stats. I, I knew all along that Omar was a better offensive player than Ozzie Smith. But the defensive stats, i got to be honest with you, I, I thought... Uh, that was a little surprising that, that Omar had 100 less errors at short than, than Ozzie did. Yeah, that's surprising, too, because I think Ozzie played on artificial turf most of his career, which you would think would be yeah, easier, easier to play on. So it, it, it looks like Vizquel would be the choice statistically. Um, uh, how about stolen bases? Did you get into that? Yeah, uh, Omar had more stolen bases than Ozzie did throughout his entire career. It was close. It was like 50 or 60, but... Um, yeah, it, it was it was fairly close. But, you know, the, the thing about it is, Mark, with the national recognition that Ozzie got, especially with the, the home run in the playoffs that year to send the Cardinals to the, to the uh, I think it was the eventual Game 7 where Jack Clark ended up winning it. I, I, maybe I've got that flip-flopped. Um, you know, Ozzie had the national recognition. Omar really didn't, even though during Omar's prime, the Indians were a very good ball club, but still, Ozzie had the national recognition. 
Yeah, you're right. And and again, he made so many spectacular plays. You know that that barehanded ball that he got um, when he was with the Padres and threw the guy out. It was a bad hop and threw he barehanded a, like a shot and um, threw out the runner. It was a, a guy from the Atlanta Braves. I mean that was played a million times, you know, on Sports Center. Yeah. But, but again, you know, we're, we're splitting hairs here to some degree. Those those are two great shortstops. But what it does to me, and I don't think he was the equal of either of those two defensively, but when you add what he did offensively, Barry Larkin was a great shortstop. I mean, he was mm-hmm. – that's why he's in the Hall of Fame. But his offensive numbers, I mean, he was a 30-30 guy. He had 30 home runs one year, drove in over 100 runs a couple of times. Uh, and, and, of course, Derek Jeter, the numbers he's putting up are stupid. And I, I saw he got four hits the other night, and I saw, <laughs> I saw him play. I'm thinking, why is he quitting? You know, he's, yeah. did, you, did you hear that the Oakland A's, during their uh, tribute to him last week, did not put up the play? From the playoffs, I believe it was in 2002, where he they they wouldn't put up that play. They said they didn't want to disrespect uh, Jeremy Giambi, Jason Giambi's brother, who is the one that was actually uh, thrown out at the plate by Jeter on that famous play. But you know, Mark, when you look at it, he was still safe. He was safe. <laughs> absolutely safe. Absolutely. Yes. Uh, uh, yeah, but yeah, I, I know what you're saying. I don't know why Jeter is is retiring either, unless he's just he's just tired totally of the grind. But you know, I'm going to say something that's probably sacrilegious here. If Cal Ripken doesn't break Lou Gehrig's record, he's not a Hall of Famer. Yeah, you're probably right. You're probably right. I mean, when you you look at the stats, you stack them up. You know, especially with the guys that you're talking about. Um, I, I just don't think he passes muster if he doesn't break Lou Gehrig's record. Well, you know, that's going to do it for – go ahead. Well, I just want to follow up on, on Derek Jeter because I think once he got 3,300 hits now or 3,250 or something like that, um, you know, he if he played three or four more years, even as a DH, he'd have a shot for Pete Rose's record. I don't know if his ego – Maybe not so much of his ego, but his pride would let him DH yeah, only. Right. Yeah. I, I'm not not sure that it would, but could he play third or second? Yeah, I think he could. Definitely. Yeah, play I, third. I, of course they're gonna they're gonna have a Rod come back next year and play third base, and sure that'll that'll solve all the Yankees' troubles right there. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's gonna do it for our Ask Us segment. Send us your questions next week to ask us or dmitch at ultimatesportstalk.com, or you can send them to us via the Twitter at uh, askus at altsportstalk. Mark, I've got to ask you a question because this popped into my head earlier tonight. What is baseball's rules on this challenge system? Because They've given the managers one challenge a game, and if you win that challenge, you get another, and if you win that challenge, you get another. But there also seems to be something in the rules that happened tonight on the ball game, and I've seen in other games also, where 
these managers can come out and just ask the umpires to go check the videotape, and it doesn't classify as a challenge. So what? why even have the challenge in there? Well, th- there's a couple of things. Uh, you're right. The uh, the head of the umpires that night, the uh, the lead umpire, he has the right at any time, if he sees, let's say it's a home run down the line, and it is clearly something that uh, needs to be questioned, they will not penalize the manager who makes the request for a review that one challenge. In other words, if it's a really close play and everybody knows it's a close play, it's going to be a tough thing to figure out. The umpire, the chief, umpire chief, he can say it'll be my challenge, not a manager's challenge. I'm going to make sure this is the right call. So, and I don't disagree with that. I mean, these these challenges. I know people complain about them, but they're taking less time than the arguments that used to take place three or four times a game <laughs> over over a play. You, you, now the, the manager comes out and he goes up the up. He says, you know what? Uh, I think that may be wrong, but I'm not sure. I, I think I'll challenge that. And the umpire goes, okay, that's fine. No problem. And, you know, you don't see anybody yelling and cussing and getting thrown out and all that stuff, which, you know, can take five, eight minutes. So I, I'm a big fan of it. It's not perfect yet, but uh, I, I don't think anything – the only thing that's surprising is if the umpire makes the call on the field, unless there is overwhelming evidence, they will not overrule it. And that's frustrating. See, I, I miss the old arguments. <laughs> the, the jerking of the bases out of the out of the pegs and, and throwing the bases and the, the turning around of the the hats and I, I miss those old arguments, Mark. You know what? You sound like a guy who, who who ruins the day that air conditioning was made. <laughs> oh no. I I'm sitting in the nice air conditioning here this evening. No, I don't <laughs> I don't rue that day, but but I mean, you know, hey, it it was fun to watch Billy Martin come out and Lou Pinella come out and argue Earl Weaver and, and even Sparky. Remember the the nineteen seventy World Series argument that tirade that Sparky went into? Yes, but I remember the nineteen seventy World Series play very, very well and Hendricks touched the, the runner, Bernie Carbo, with his glove and not the ball. That, that could have cost the Reds a World Series. That play was wrong. And had we had replay, uh, you know, that World Series may have ended up differently. But uh, I'm all for getting it right. And if it takes an extra minute or two, uh, you know, so many billions of dollars are invested in these teams to have one play like that ruin your whole year. And I don't think that should be the case. No, I agree with you, Mark, absolutely. I, I think – you know, the way that the replay has gone, I don't think it's taken any time. For crying out loud, we've got more time taken up between innings with commercial breaks yeah, or, or changing pitchers with commercial breaks than we do with uh, what's happening here with checking the replay. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And that's They were talking about uh, how to make the game go faster. The average pitching change takes about four and a half minutes. So if you, the pitcher, come, you know, being called in, the manager goes out, calls him in, he runs in, he takes his ten warm ups, and that takes about four minutes. And you do that three or four or five times, you know, it's twelve, fifteen, twenty minutes in a game where you have pitching changes if they're going to be coming in in the middle of the inning. So the, this suggestion was you bring these pitchers in and they get one or two warm ups and that's it, and you know, warm up in the bullpen. That's what it's for. Well, I know they get eight warm-ups, but I would think five would be, would be sufficient. 
Well, or, or if it's if it's going to be none, it's none for everybody. So mm-hmm. it, it would certainly you know speed up the game. But th- there's a lot of things they can do. But you were right. The biggest problem is tune. It was a two two and a half minutes now between every inning. Well, that's a lot of that's a half hour in commercials between innings. Right, right. And and you you talked about that a few weeks ago uh, very well, I might add, because. You know, that was one thing that, that people don't take into consideration, that the time of a game has not increased that much. It is the, the amount of time for commercial breaks in between innings that have been, that has increased the time of the game. Yeah, I, I remember reading that the fastest game in the history of Major League Baseball was 51 minutes. And it's because they had no commercials. You know, guys ran off, they what? ran on, they played. <coughs> Obviously, Mike Hargrove was not hitting in that game. No, for sure. <laughs> Human rain delay. You know, hey, another thing, uh, Michael Brantley for the Cleveland Indians won the American League Player of the Week award. He batted five eighty nine for the week, just had an outstanding series in Boston. But, Mark, true to the Indians' luck, he took a knee to the head tonight from former Indian John McDonald sliding into second, trying to break up a double play, and they had to take him out in the fifth inning in the ball game. Uh, they think he might be suffering from a concussion, although no one is uh, saying yay or nay as far as that is concerned. So they had to pull Brantley out of the ball game and put Aviles in left field. But still, true to the Indians' luck, one of their better hitters is down now. Well, that's too bad because he was he – was hitting the ball really well. I saw him last week play, and uh, he was hitting ropes. Yeah, this kid has really come on. Of course, uh, the Indians, he's one of the saving graces from the C.C. Sabathia trademark. That's one of the players that they got from Milwaukee. Matter of fact, he's the only player they have left from that C.C. Sabathia trade. Yeah, that's amazing. That was, uh, you know, Sabathia, the last time I saw him, he looked... He looked not even like he'd make the staff. I mean, he looked completely like a different pitcher than two or three years ago. Maybe he lost too much weight. I don't know. Yeah, that that, that very well could be. You know, you're you're saying something that that a lot of people may think is 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 cruel or facetious, but I got to tell you, Mark, that may be the the entire problem behind him. A lot of people think I I've got to say I, I've seen. A couple of guys told me this earlier this year. I thought it was rather odd, but then I've seen a couple of articles that Justin Verlander's problems this year have all to do with Kate Upton. Well, I would trade. I would trade performance for Kate Upton. <laughs> you know, there's an old yeah. saying. I, th- I think women say this more than men that you can never be too rich or too thin, uh, and I'm all for that in certain cases. But I think when you're an athlete, um, I think that Homer Bailey is an example. Last year, he was about 15 pounds heavier. And when he came out of spring training, I thought he was way too thin. And he, he was pitching lousy. And they said he's now gained about 10, 12 pounds back, and he's pitching much, much better. So uh, for those of you who want to be models or uh, be on um, Facebook or whatever, uh, being very wealthy and very thin, that's fine. But for you athletes... I would say uh, don't get too thin because it can it can adversely affect your performance. Well, and that leads me to my last question here for you on tonight's show. I heard on ESPN over the weekend radio 
that they think that the the increase in athletes' injuries have to do with the fact that the athletes are very well conditioned today. Baseball players alone, Mark, do you think that's the case, that baseball players have more injuries now because they are overly conditioned? No, I don't. What, what I think is uh, that the diagnostics are better, that the, the medical teams have more tools to diagnose injuries that, that sometimes are more serious than originally thought, and whereby years ago, guys, they tear an ACL or whatever, ah, my knee hurts a little bit, uh, and they keep playing. But the, 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 the medical staffs, I mean, you have basically a hospital in a trainer room. You have two or three doctors, you have trainers, you have conditioners, dietitians, strength coaches, all this stuff. And they keep these guys in great shape. But when an injury occurs, they have the ability now to say, yeah, we know what that is now. We'll, we'll take an, e an MRI and we'll tell you exactly what it is. Before, they didn't have that luxury. You know, you told the story a while ago about Gary Nolan, that if they knew what they today, back then, Gary Nolan probably would have had one surgery and that would have been it. Gary Nolan would be in the Hall of Fame. He was that good. I, I saw him pitch in 1965 at Crosley Field. I think it was his second or third game. And, th David, this guy was as good as anybody I've ever seen ever. He was that good. He had a unbelievable fastball he had a breaking ball he had a slider he had a change up uh he, he had everything going for him and his, his arm but it's funny uh seeing him throw he, there was there's a term called throwing across your body yes where you you know you know what it means but for those of those who don't when you when you don't finish your turn as a pitcher you, you throw and you, and you come across your body rather than turning your shoulders to the plate well, you can be reasonably effective, but it puts a lot of strain on your shoulder. And that's what killed Gary Nolan. But he, I'm telling you, David, he, he was as good as anybody we've seen, at, le at least I've seen in my lifetime, that was destined for the Hall of Fame if he wasn't injured. Yeah, I and the, the poor guy just never could get over his arm injuries. Mark, uh, one other thing. We talked about it last week. Might as well bring it up again tonight. Pete Rose made his return to managing baseball tonight for the Bridgeport Bluefish of the of Connecticut in the um, Atlantic League of Professional Baseball. I did not see anything on ESPN about this today other than it was mentioned on their bottom line. That was it. Yeah, I, I saw a picture of him. He was wearing a Reds uniform, which I'm surprised uh, he was. But he was wearing a Reds uniform with a different kind of hat. Uh, I don't know how he got away with that, but... Uh, wow. Yeah, I, I don't. That, that is interesting. I wonder if baseball knows about that. What are they going to do? Suspend him? <laughs> yeah, good, good point. Well, Mark, as we said last week, this is a very, very important week for the Reds. They started it out with two out of three against Milwaukee, and now the rest of this week they have got Pittsburgh, and I would think, just myself, Mark, I think they got to take two out of three against Pittsburgh. Well, yeah, but they, behind that, they got Toronto, who has the best what the best record in the American League. Uh, so they get their hands full, and 
again, the Reds are getting healthy now, and um, with that pitching staff, they're going to be competitive between now and the end of the year. It's just what games they win, as you know. Um, if the Reds, I bring it up again, had they won on Saturday night, uh, it, it would have made their life a lot easier. They did not. So they're going to have to, they have to sweep some of these series to get back into it. And that's going to be awfully hard to do with a team as good as Pittsburgh. Can they come back in this division? Are they well, too far out? It's not that they're too far out. It's that they're in fourth place. So they got to they got to catch three teams. they got to catch Milwaukee, St. Louis, and Pittsburgh. And I think those three teams arguably uh, are the best three teams in, in outside of San Francisco in the National League. So, you know, they have a lot to overcome. You know, they could get hot, but it's likely that one of the three teams they are catching will be hot at the same time. So it's going to be hard for them to gain, you know, gain ground on, on the leaders. Yeah, and they do have Toronto coming to Cincinnati, though, which is a good thing because I can't tell you. I, I've, been to, I've been to the Sky Dome, Rogers Field, as they, they, Rogers Center, as they now call it, but I've been in Toronto. That is about the dungiest ballpark you could go to. Well, did you ever go to uh, Montreal when they played up no. in that? Oh, my gosh. That was, it was like playing in an airplane hangar. Uh, you know, it was a terrible place to play. But what scares me is that that Toronto team has some real power, and them coming into Great American Ballpark uh, is a scary thought. Yeah, they they do. They're a good ball club. They're better than a lot of people do realize. The Indians, on the other hand, they've got the Angels not only tonight, which they're winning right now. They've got a one-run lead on the Angels going into the uh, ninth inning. So they're going to try to close it out here. But then after a four-game set against the Angels, then they've got Detroit coming up this weekend, which is going to be a very important series, Mark, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday with the Tigers. And we'll talk more about the Pittsburgh series, the Toronto series, and the Angels in Detroit next Monday night, okay? All right, Dave. You have a good week. All right, you too, Mark. Don't forget our Ultimate Sports Talk show coming up. On Thursday night at 7 o'clock. And we'll be back next Monday night with the Ohio Baseball Weekly Show at 9 with Mark Donahue and I. Our thanks to Greg Mitchell, our producer. But, of course, most of all, our thanks to you for listening here this evening. For Mark Donahue, I'm Dave Mitchell. Until next Monday night with the Ohio Baseball Weekly Show, good night, everybody.